You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Our greatest disappointment can be one of two things. It can be a dead end or a defining moment. So often when we're told no or a door slams in our face or something throws us off course, it feels like a dead end. It feels like, why try? That no may actually be a setup. That no might open the door to another opportunity because it allows you to see through a slightly different lens and to view not just the end of the road, but just maybe a turn in the road. Your life, it's going to change. Jobs, kids, houses. Are you ready, financially ready to enjoy the ride? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today because you have got a lot to look forward to. Get excited, but be prepared. Hi, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. If you were here with us late last year for episode number 279, Becoming a Boundary Boss, then I hope that you have spent these last few months really flexing your no-saying muscles, setting the boundaries that you need and rejecting the things in your life that don't serve you. And it's that last part, it's rejection, that we're going to dive into today, only we're going to flip it on its head a little bit. We're not talking about when you eliminate something or someone from your life. We're exploring what happens when you're the one getting rejected, when you're told no, when what you really, really want is a yes. Because I got to tell you, lately, I feel like all we're hearing is what a wonderful time it is to get hired, how people are getting these crazy 90% bumps in salary when they change jobs because the market is so hot, hot, hot. But the truth is, it can be a great time to get hired and we can also get turned away from the job of our dreams. And I think that culturally, we spend so much time talking about how to turn a no into a yes, that we forget that sometimes a no is just a no. And we have to pick ourselves up and move on. We have to turn our attention to new places and new opportunities and new people that actually want us wholeheartedly and appreciate what we have to offer. So today, we are diving into a show all about how to prepare for rejection, how to handle it when it happens, how to move on when it does. We're doing it with Jordan Dooley. And Jordan started her career with a small Etsy shop in college selling inspirational cards and journals and clothes for women going through changes. And she quickly grew her company into so much more than that with books, programming, and the popular podcast, She that offers guidance for how ambitious women can do everything from cultivating a home to building a vibrant career and managing money. Her best-selling book is Embrace Your Almost, Find Clarity and Contentment in the In-Betweens, Not Quites, and Unknowns. I love that title, Jordan, and I always love a really good, long, strong subtitle. So way to go with that. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Ah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to dive into this topic of rejection too, because I've been there, right? I mean, you know how frustrating it gets when you almost achieve a goal, almost reach a dream, almost get where you want to be only to land just short of the finish line. Can you tell us what inspired you to write Embrace Your Almost? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for asking. You know, I felt like 
what was interesting in my life is I achieved a lot of things very early in my life, which was a gift in many ways. But I think it also got me used to if I just do all the right things, things will go my way. That's often true, but not always true. Sometimes you can do all the right things and things can still go wrong. You can still get a no. You can still be hit with a curveball. Life can still knock you down. And that's kind of what happened for me and what I found through kind of being rudely disrupted, if you will. Like it was kind of like a unexpected interruption when suddenly things started going sideways. And even though I was doing all the right things, they weren't working out in the ways that I thought they would in the ways that they had before. I just felt like there were multiple broken plans or expectations that kind of came out of nowhere. And I felt like everywhere I looked, there was the same cliche message of just get up and try again. It'll work out if you give it another shot, which sometimes is true. And then I would do that and then something would go wrong again. And I felt like, where's the message that speaks to when you keep getting told no, when things continue to not work out, when you feel like you've given it your best effort, you've done everything right, you could possibly try and you're still not quite getting what you wanted or what you thought you would have had by now. And so I wanted to write a book that kind of spoke to that challenge and that feeling of like, man, I'm almost there. There's really no reason why I shouldn't be there, but something just refuses to work out or it's just... I'm at the mercy of someone else's decision or it's not quite going how I thought. How do we navigate that well? And what do we do when that happens? When we get up and try again and we still don't get quite what we thought we would. It's such a female thing, isn't it? I mean, it's mm. just, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, we we were raised that if you study for the test, you're going to get the A. And mm-hmm. if you get the A, you're going to get the grade point average and you're going to get into <laughs> college. And you and know, that the dominoes right off into fall. a sunset. <laughs> yeah, that they're going to fall as expected. Mm-hmm. What happened? For those of us who don't know your story, what happened to you? Yeah, I'll give you the brief overview. So I ended the year 2019 with thinking I was on top of the world. I had just written my first book and it was a national bestseller. I made the 30 under 30 list um, in Success Magazine. My husband was able to leave his job and come work with me. We had just moved into our first home. Like we had just all of these things that were just kind of like check boxes that we just felt like we were flying through these milestones in life and professionally. And then at the end of the year, we found out we were expecting. And so we ended the year around Christmas time thinking like, wow, this has been the best year ever. Everything is going according to plan. And then in January, unexpectedly went through a pregnancy loss. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Yeah, it was definitely a hard year for us. Up until that point, pretty much everything was just falling in line. And then it was just like everything blew up in my face. And I had to figure out how do I process that, you know? And even professionally, there were some things that we tried to put out there that we pivoted and tried to put out there. And we kind of got a lot of no response back. People saying, that's not what we wanted. So there was a lot of navigating geez, can I catch a break? Like I've been trying to do all the things and listen to the right people and make the right decisions. And I feel like it's just kind of like salt in the wound. So anyways, that was a real pivotal season of my life. There's been other almosts and things that didn't quite work out how I wanted earlier than that. And also after that, you know, my husband's career, it was quite the roller coaster with when we first got married. More recently, we ended up selling our home that we thought we'd be in forever because it was just not the right fit for us for a lot of reasons. So there's been other things that I thought, man, I thought this was going to be what our life was, or I thought this was going to be how things worked out. And I've had to pivot or release things or let go or know when to let go of a dream. You know, I've closed down a business before. There's just been all these different almosts in my life. But I think those three experiences right around the time COVID hit, just as I thought I had the world at my feet, it was so jarring and pivotal for me that it really shifted my perspective on a lot. I think there's been a lot of good that's come out of it, but it was a very not good thing. (laughs) No, it sounds awful. Mm. And again, I'm really, really sorry that that happened to you. 
But you write in the book that having to rethink your dreams Mm -hmm. is not always the worst thing. Yeah. So why is it not always the worst thing? When something delays, disrupts, or even seems to destroy our dreams, it really does kind of make us rethink, am I on the right path? You know, and that can feel like a bad thing. But I think in my own experience, not only loss, but other disruptions in my life, such as COVID or other things with professional dreams not quite working out how I thought, I found that sometimes that's really the only opportunity. And I say opportunity kind of in air quotes because it sure doesn't feel like an opportunity. It feels like an obstacle, right? But it sometimes creates space because it really forces us to slow down and really consider like, well, where am I going? And is this right for me? You know, we live in a world that's saying like constantly telling us what we could do or should do. And we're getting a lot of messages. There's a lot of great marketing. And sometimes I think we can chase or pursue things arbitrarily. And at least for me in my own experience, when I walked through some really big setbacks in my life, such as loss, such as massive career shifts and things like that, it was the first time I really slowed down. Because when we're just going and checking off the next achievement, flying through the next milestone, taking the next opportunity... We don't always take the time to pause and really consider, is this actually right for me in this season of my life? Is this something that I should be pursuing or am I just doing it because I think I should or because it sounds good or it'll impress somebody? And there were some dreams that through that exercise in my own experience, I found I don't even really know why I'm doing that. Yeah. I think that happens to a lot of us who strive, right? Mm -hmm. You get on this, it's almost a striving hamster wheel and you're going and you're going after the next thing and the next thing and the next thing in part because you can, in part because you don't know what else to do, in part because you think you should. So how do you know when it's time to let go of a particular Mm. dream? Yeah, How do you know when a rejection, for example, should actually throw you off course? Hmm. So there's a couple things that I think are helpful to consider when you're trying to decide, is this something I should continue to persevere on? Because it's not always something we should let go, but sometimes it is. And so trying to make that distinction between, is this something I should set aside or take a break from or pause or maybe let go? Or is it something I should continue to persevere on? I think there's a couple helpful things to think about. One, I would evaluate, have you exhausted all options? Because I think sometimes when our first shot doesn't work out, we are tempted to throw in the towel, but maybe that feels premature and so we're torn. So I think it's helpful to consider, have I exhausted all options and all routes to the end goal, to the outcome I'm hoping for? If the answer is yes, and you're like, no matter what I've tried, I've run into a brick wall, maybe it's just time to pause. It may just be time to set it aside for a season, maybe table it and come back to it in a year, and maybe try it again. And if it still doesn't work, then maybe it's time to let it go. So that can be a helpful way to audit that decision. Another thing I think is really, really helpful to do is to ask yourself why. Because what can happen is maybe there's something you've been pursuing for a long time or really hoping for, or try, maybe it's making partner in your company, or maybe it's you know getting s- some sort of offering off the ground in your business or something else. And it's something you've really, really wanted to do or thought you really wanted to do. And then if you actually sat down and you said, why do I want to do that? Why is that a dream? And if you didn't really have a very clear answer that came to mind, if you just said, well, I don't know, I've just wanted to do it so long. I just think I now at this point, it's just about proving that I can or because my sister did it or because it sounds good. That's not a very solid reason to keep driving yourself into the ground and persevering on something that maybe you don't really have a solid reason for pursuing in the first place. Whereas if you said, I really want this opportunity because it would allow me more flexibility so I can spend more time with my family. And that's something I've craved for a long time. So I really need to find an opportunity like this. That's a good reason to keep going, right? So really consider like, is this dream even purpose-driven or is it maybe a little bit arbitrary? And I think that's an important distinction. So that would be the second thing. And then the third thing is, 
it's really helpful to seek counsel, Mm -hmm. to run that decision by people who are not quite as emotionally attached to the decision you're trying to make. I know when I was trying to decide whether or not to take a break and step back and really honestly close my first company because it just lacked a lot of direction and there were some issues with it, even though things were going well on the surface, I felt like it wasn't sustainable long term. And I was really wrestling with that decision because I thought this seems foolish, like in many ways it's working. I don't know if I should let it go or if I should just try to fix things. And so I actually ran that decision by several mentors and friends and people in my life who understood my heart, who were familiar with my business, who understood my market, but who also weren't so emotionally invested in what I was doing professionally that they could kind of see it with a little bit more of an objective lens. And I find that it's really helpful when you seek counsel to set a little bit of a limit on this because I think a lot of times it can be tempting to just talk ourselves into a circle. Like we're just going to talk to everybody and have 17 different conversations, you know, 17 different ways to Sunday. And so I had to say, okay, these are the five people I'm going to run this by because of these reasons. This is who I trust. This is who has given me really sound advice in the past. This is somebody who understands my industry. Like pick a handful of people in your inner circle that you could run this by. And then say, these are the amount of conversations I'm going to have. And if the majority of them line up with this feeling that maybe I need to let this go, I'm going to take that as affirmation. Versus if most of them are saying, actually, no, you haven't considered this, this, and this, and I think it's actually premature to let it go, then I'm going to maybe persevere for another six months, or I'm going to try give it one more try and try it this way, or with this company or with this opportunity. So those three steps, I think, can be really helpful just for helping you kind of remove yourself emotionally and not buy into the lie that if you stop pursuing it, you're somehow a quitter because sometimes the winners really quit the wrong things for themselves. And so, you know, really being able to make an objective, wise and sound decision versus an emotional one is so helpful in deciding, is this something I should keep pursuing or is this something I maybe I should take a pause or a break from? What I like so much about that approach is that it has some guardrails, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you're saying decide how many people you're going to talk to, decide how long you're going to give yourself to have this conversation. If you decide you're going to go forward, put a time limit on it. Maybe you'll do it for another six months. It's not endless. And that just gives it some shape and some form and some boundaries. And Mm -hmm. I think especially in times when we feel like the world is saying no to us, we're just tempted to try everything. Mm -hmm. And you're saying, don't try everything, try something, but give yourself some structure. It's really, really helpful advice. And look, it's helpful advice no matter what is happening in your life. We know that life comes at us really fast. There could be weddings on the horizon. Maybe there's a promotion around the corner. Maybe there's even a grandchild on the way. The question is, are you financially prepared? for everything life has in store. If you have a well-crafted financial plan, you can be ready. And that's why I'd love you to visit planefe.com slash hermoney. While you're there, you can schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor and work with an expert to review your personal situation, your personal economy, to develop a long-term strategy to help you embrace life's biggest moments. It's a free appointment, so you can schedule yours today. I am talking with Jordan Dooley. She's the author of Embrace Your Almost. Great title. I want to walk our listeners through processing their feelings 
at a time like this, processing their feelings around rejection. Can you help us try to tee up some of those questions we may be asking ourselves when we get rejected and how to process those feelings? And also, you know, is there any advice for finding a spot of, if not happiness, then at least sanity mm-hmm. after you've gotten a big no? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when life doesn't go the way we hoped or a dream doesn't quite pan out like we thought it would or as quickly as we thought it would, it can be really devastating. And I think it can lead to a lot of discontentment with our life. We can get so hyper-focused on the no we just received or the thing that didn't work out that we miss out on a lot of the other beautiful things in life too. But I think that's valid. And so I often say that our greatest disappointment, which in this case may be a, a rejection or a no or another kind of disappointment, but our greatest disappointment can be one of two things. It can be a dead end or a defining moment. And I think that's something to keep in mind and hold in your back pocket because so often when we're told no or a door slams in our face or something throws us off course, it feels like a dead end. It feels like why try? So I just want to remind you that it may feel like a dead end, but it can also be a defining moment. That no may actually be like as much as it feels like a setback it may actually be a setup. That no might open the door to another opportunity, might be the thing that you needed so you could finally start that business or finally go for something else or release that dream and pursue the thing that's really right for you in this season of your life. So all of that said, I just want to validate that it's hard, that it's discouraging, that your feelings are valid, but also keep those two things in mind too as you're processing that a disappointment can be a dead end or a defining moment. You get to decide if it's going to stop you or if it's going to propel you. And when you decide that it's going to be a defining moment, that's when a setback can really turn into a setup because it allows you to see through a slightly different lens and to view not just the end of the road, but just maybe a turn in the road. And so That's the first thing I just want to speak into anyone who's feeling that discouragement. And then also for processing those feelings and trying to make, like you mentioned, just how do I, maybe I'm not like loving my life right now because something really big isn't working out or I'm being told no and that feels making me feel a little bit insecure or discouraged. I came up with this concept of liking your life. And the reason I came up with this is because so often we are told to love our life, to create a life we love. And what Mm -hmm. if you're sitting there and you're like, I'm trying to do that and I keep being told no and doors keep getting slammed in my face and it makes it really hard to love the life that I have because there's this massive area where something isn't quite working out how I hoped. And so the reality is life can be hard and hard to love. And as much as we'd all love to love our lives at all times, in those times where it feels discouraging, where you feel frustrated, where you're just getting stuck, where you're being told no, my greatest challenge to you is as you're navigating those feelings and as you're working through the very real frustration that that can bring up, I want to encourage you to think of ways that you may be able to like your life even here, even before you get the dream job, even before you cross the finish line, even before you hit your revenue goal, even before you get to where you want to be. And sometimes that looks like simple things. It means how do you create a lovely existence where you are while still longing for where you hope to be? Doesn't mean you stop moving. Doesn't mean you stop taking action steps. Doesn't mean you quit on what you're hoping for if that's really the right decision or the right direction for you. But it means that maybe you make some small adjustments to how you're living your life. Maybe you pick up a hobby. You know, maybe you've got some extra time right now and it's like, okay, this is a frustrating time. I thought I'd be working full time. I thought I'd be doing X, Y, or Z and I'm still not quite there. Is there a hobby you could pick up? Is there a way that you could serve and and use your hands and get involved in it? Because we can get so stuck in our heads when things don't work out how we thought or how we'd like. 
And it can be really helpful to kind of get outside our own lives and serve and make a difference in other people's lives somehow tangibly in our community if possible. So something like that even can kind of just get us out of that like hamster wheel of frustration and the constant like discouragement we feel and can help us feel a little bit more content in our lives, even if it's not where we want to be. So yeah. serving, picking up a hobby, things like that can just be really, really helpful for trying to take a few steps to like your life when your feelings are starting to take over and it feels like your life is really hard to love. Yeah. And we're talking about all of this, you and I, and we're framing this conversation in terms of jobs, right? In mm -hmm. terms of work, in terms of mm -hmm. businesses. It applies 100% across the board mm -hmm. to relationships, right? 100%. I'm thinking of people in my life, women in my life, good friends who are trying to date and mm -hmm. are having trouble, you know, yeah. for whatever reason. They are just not finding it right now. And I think mm -hmm. everything that you are saying is excellent advice mm -hmm. for them. I'm thinking of my mother. My stepfather passed away just a couple of months ago, and she's in a really rocky place. She lost my dad, then she lost him. It's been really hard. But in just the last couple of weeks, she got a personal trainer. And I can hear it in her voice when she has her twice-a-week sessions with this trainer. You know, she likes this. She likes spending time doing her biceps curls and doing all and the other challenged. things. And, I, and that's sort of where this conversation is taking me. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think there's so many other rejections or disruptions in life that can just feel absolutely devastating. And it's like, Sometimes that cliche message of like, just get up and try again or build a life you love. It's like, what if life is really hard right now and hard yeah. to love? It's sometimes just about making the most of where you are. That doesn't make it amazing, but it might make it a little less miserable. I love that example of what you shared with your mom, just investing in her health, investing in herself. Like, especially after my losses, I remember just feeling very lost. Like my family didn't look how I thought. My timeline for my life got thrown off. My business had gotten blown up by COVID. Like everything was just kind of a disaster. I was like, what do I do with this space? There was a lot of empty space where I thought family would be filling it, mothering would be filling it, you know, a relationship would be filling it, whatever that may be, fill in the blank, a job. For me, I was talking with a friend who had experienced something similar a few years prior. And I shared with her, you know, I feel the need to just get like super busy and distract myself because I don't know what else to do. And she gave me some really good advice. She said, you don't have to overpack your schedule. Like you don't have to distract yourself, but this is a boot camp to learning to be more still and present, I really believe. And that doesn't mean doing nothing. It doesn't mean just sitting there in a chair and looking out the window, but it means making really intentional decisions to do things that move you forward, that move the needle and that develop you, that prepare you for maybe the job that will eventually come or the relationship that may come. But even if it doesn't, it makes you a more interesting, well-rounded, full person by investing in your health, by picking up hobbies, by learning something new. I remember I asked my dad to teach me to play poker during that season because I just Love wanted to that. learn something yep. new. You know, I started serving. We started volunteering and helping families in crisis. Like, you know, I went to therapy, like investing in yourself, growing and learning new things. Those will ultimately make you a more interesting person. And it'll feel like there's some enjoyable things to look forward to when you're trudging through a season of no's, a season of rejection, a season of disappointment, a season of unmet expectations. If you can give yourself those little things to look forward to that bring a little light to your life, it's going to make it just feel a little bit more bearable when it's feeling unbearable or really frustrating. There are some of these situations, you don't get the job, you get fired, you don't get asked for the second or third date. I'm wondering if having answers as to why that happened is helpful. You know, why did you get rejected? Why did this happen? 
some of these scenarios that we're talking about, there is no why, right? Mm -hmm. Life sucks is Mm -hmm. the why. Yeah. But in other cases, particularly if it's happened more than once, do you think Mm -hmm. that trying to find the reason, you mentioned therapy, do you think that that is helpful? I think it can be. Again, I think it depends on the situation, but I think it can be helpful to, especially like I think in certain in certain contexts, for example, in the job situation, if you keep hearing no's and from different situations, it may be helpful to actually f- try to find out like, okay, what wasn't quite right so that you can actually maybe work on that or say, oh, I didn't realize that was such a critical thing that they were looking for. In, For example, I remember when my husband was working with a medical device company. And he was doing great, top performer, like so many reasons to be promoted, but he just kept making these lateral moves. And he was having a hard time understanding why, because he had such a great relationship with his superiors and everything. And it turned out there was a certain kind of test that they wanted their sales reps to take. And if they didn't score a certain way, then they weren't going to get promoted because they had found this archetype that if you don't test this way, you're not going to be as successful in sales. So this whole time he's thinking it's like a personal thing. They just maybe don't like him or think he's... And it turns out that it's actually based on a test, you know? And so sometimes those kind of things can be really helpful because otherwise, if you're just assuming things, it could be killing your confidence. That could be hurting your future interviews or future opportunities when maybe it literally had nothing to do with you. So I think if you find yourself in a situation maybe like that, it can be helpful to kind of digging into. And you'd brought up therapy. I think just being more self-aware is always helpful. I don't know that that's always going to give you a clear why, because even just in dating relationships, if something doesn't work out a couple of times or you get no's a couple of different times, you have to remember like in that case, you're also dealing with different individuals who all have their own baggage and things that could be affecting or impacting their ability to continue dating or their desire for the relationship and all of that, their ability to commit. So I think it can be helpful to be intentional about growing and finding ways that you can become a better partner, a better person or more interesting. But I think at the same time, I know in my case, especially through loss, like I was like, why did we go through these losses? Right. And we found some clues and some answers which were helpful for the future. But to a degree, it kind of just drove me crazy because I was like, well, what if there's another reason? What if we haven't uncovered something? So you also, in that regard, have to put a little bit of a limit on things, too, because otherwise you can drive yourself crazy trying to find an answer that you may never get. Where do you shake out on this idea that rejection makes you stronger? I remember my son, and I've talked about this before, but my son was born with a pretty significant heart condition. And he's great. He's 27. He's amazing living a life that he loves in California. But when it happened, a friend of mine said to me, God only gives you as much as you could handle. And I thought, well, fuck that. That was not helpful. That was not what I wanted to hear. I don't know. I don't know that I believe that rejection makes us stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and think in that regard to, I actually think a lot of times we are given more than we can handle. And I don't always understand why. Perhaps it's an opportunity to learn to lean into others and seek the help we need and understand that we don't have to be super people, you know? I don't know. There's deep, deep suffering in the world that sometimes just doesn't make sense. And there's brokenness and there's not a prescriptive cutesy little answer that you can put on something. And I think we tend to do that to try to offer comfort. And all that really does is make it feel like, like I remember when people would say things like, can you imagine getting through this without God? And I was like, well, yeah, because then I wouldn't feel personally betrayed or, you know, it's just difficult. And that was my own wrestling at that time with just where I was. And I think that's the complication of it all. But in regards to rejection making you stronger, I think rejection can refine you. Hard things refine us. It's like walking through a fire because what happens when we walk through hard things, do I think they make us stronger? Maybe, sometimes. But if anything, I think more so than that, and maybe more importantly than that, 
I think they refine you. Kind of what we were talking about earlier, they do kind of make you rethink things. And what can happen when you experience a refining is you get really focused on what do I actually value? What matters most to me? How can I make sure I'm doing more of that and less of what isn't that? How do I rid myself of distractions? So in a way, the things that are hard in our life, the heartbreaks, the rejections, the setbacks, the suffering, those things are refining And I think they give us more clarity on what truly matters and helps us walk in that direction. Do I think that there's like this grand, like, oh, they're here to make you stronger? Not always, but I do think that they are refining. And I think there are gifts to be found in refinement, even if it's not fun to walk through and not something we would choose. Well, it was a gift to have you here today and to have this conversation. I really, I could talk to you for a very, (laughs) very long time. Jordan, Julie, where can we find you? Where can we find more of everything that you bring to the table? Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It's been such a good conversation. You can find me on social media at Jordan Lee Dooley across all platforms. And you can find my books anywhere books are sold or visit me online at jordanleedooley.com. Let me take a moment to remind you that important conversations like this one are supported, like Her Money is, by BCU. BCU is a credit union that helps its members feel confident and assured with the peace of mind that comes from making smart financial decisions. And you can visit bcu.org to learn ways to secure your financial future. Her Money's wonderful Catherine Tuggle joins me now. Hey, Catherine. Hi, Jean. Oh, that was very kind. Thank you. Of course, of course, of course. That's how I feel. I really enjoyed talking to her. I feel calm, actually. I feel like a little less tense than I felt when we started that conversation. Yeah. And I love the direction that you guys took this conversation, right? Because I set this up as a producer, as a conversation about rejection. And I think hearing her talk and hearing you talk about loss as it relates to rejection and the whole barrel of rejection and loss and how these two things are so inextricably linked in all of the areas of life is is really powerful. Well, it just seemed to me that they were one and the same. I mean, I know they're not, right? I know you can't equate the loss of a job with the loss of a person or not getting a job, but it's a part of your life that you have to take in another direction, whether you want to or not. Right. And that requires strategy and bravery. And I thought her points were really good, that sometimes we have these conversations and they live up at 60,000 feet. And she really brought it down to earth with some suggestions for things you could actually do. Right. And I like the tactical. So I thought that was terrific. Yeah, same here. We've got questions, so let's dive in. Yeah, both questions that I pulled today come from members of our private Harmony Facebook group. Our first listener writes, Hi, ladies. I have a social security question. If I wait until I'm 70 instead of my full retirement age at 66 and a half to claim social security, I know my payouts will increase by 8% each year till I'm 70. But what if I decide to take social security at age 68 or 69? Does the amount increase by 8% each year for those two years too? Or do you only get that 8% annual increase if you wait until age 70? Thank you. Sure. This is a good question because it's complicated, right? Claiming Social Security is one of the most important financial decisions that most of us will make in our entire lives, when to claim it, at what age. And you can claim anywhere from age 62, you don't have to wait until full retirement age, 
to age 70. The vast majority of people in this country actually do claim at age 62. Some of them do it because they need the money. And in that scenario, if you need money to put food on the table, of course, of course you take your Social Security. But for other people who have other money that they can draw on or who are going to keep working, it usually does make sense to wait as long as possible because you get that increase in your payout of 8%, and it's an average, but it's around 8% for each year that you wait from age 62 until age 70. So if you wait from 66 and a half to 67 and a half, that's 8%. If you wait again to 68 and a half, that's 8%. Every single year you get the 8% bump. The one caveat that I want to put on my answer to this question is that it gets complicated because of marital relationships. So if you're in a partnership or a marriage where there's a high earning spouse and a lower earning spouse, or where there is an age discrepancy between the spouses, or if you have some health-related reason to believe that you are not going to live past about age 80, sometimes it doesn't make sense to wait. There are calculators that you can use. They cost a little bit of money in many cases, like $49, to figure out what your exact Social Security claiming strategy should be. One of them, which was developed by a guy named Larry Kotlikoff, Lawrence Kotlikoff, who is an economist, is at MaximizeMySocialSecurity.com. If you have a financial advisor, financial advisors have this software too. And they can put your age in, put your spouse's age in, put your social security picture in, and they can figure out for you what your precise claiming strategy should be. But everybody should go to socialsecurity.gov, set up an account so that you know what is coming down the pike for you and you can make an educated decision. I love that advice, Jean. And these things are so tricky, you know, to think about wanting to get the most annual increase that you can, but also wanting to retire as soon as you can. It, it's complicated. It's really complicated. Look, I have run these calculations with my financial advisor. Elliot is eight years older than me. And so we have that age discrepancy between us. And I wanted to make sure, should we both wait until age 70? Should only he waits? And then should I start? How does that all work together? Yeah. So the computer helps us figure it out. Nice. Our next listener writes, We had to place my dad in memory care a few weeks ago. He and my mom are both 73. She has a financial planner that manages their investments, but is worried about running out of money. She doesn't always understand what he tells her. Is there a simple and free budgeting app you'd recommend for people who aren't particularly tech savvy? Or should I just use a spreadsheet or other notebook? I want her to really understand what she has to work with each month instead of living in fear and feeling like she can't spend money on anything. Thank you so much for your advice. Well, first of all, thanks for writing. I'm really sorry about what is going on with your family and with your dad. Memory care is really, really rough. I don't like what I'm hearing about this particular financial planner. 
I don't like that she doesn't understand what he tells her. I think that maybe she could use a little bit of additional time with this person, but it's also possible that this person is not serving her needs. And so what I'd like to see is if you could go with her to the next meeting of this financial advisor, right? I often have gone to doctor's appointments with my mom. Why do I go to the doctor's appointment with my mom? She's perfectly capable of understanding what the doctor says. Well, you know, these appointments can be stressful. And in a stressful situation, you don't always take in everything. You don't always remember what questions to ask. You don't always hear it as best you can. And so having somebody else in the room who has your best interest at heart can help just make sure that the information gets heard and gets taken in and gets noted down and gets paid attention to. And if you're in the room, then you will be able to hear if this financial planner is talking at her instead of talking with her or to her. You will be able to hear if the planner is being condescending you will be able to hear and see what's going on. And if you don't like what you see and you don't understand what's being said, I'd get myself out of there and I would find somebody who does make sense. That said, you asked if there's a simple free budgeting app for people who aren't particularly tech savvy. I mean, that's a hard one. Apps are by their nature techy, right? You certainly could use a spreadsheet or a notebook. You certainly could try to use her online bank as a way of following the flow of funds. Make sure that all the transactions or as many as possible are going through that so she knows what she has to work with and can then spend freely up to a certain limit. But I think that there is a different question underlying this living in fear and feeling that she can't spend money on anything, and that is the longevity of her portfolio. It's not sounding to me like this advisor has done the sort of talking to her about modeling if you spend this much and we have your money invested like this, your portfolio will last another 30 years. But if you spend this much, your portfolio will last another 25 years. And if you spend this much, it'll last another 20 years. I was just recently on the phone with Stacy Francis. She runs a not-for-profit called Savvy Ladies. And Savvy Ladies offers free financial planning advice and free conversations for women with financial advisors. And I think maybe you and your mom, if this financial advisor that they have is truly not working, maybe you want to give Savvy Ladies a call and see if their budgeting help in addition to the financial advice that they offer might be able to put your mother's mind at ease. You asked for something free, and so that's immediately where my head went because it is a pro bono service. It's a great pro bono service. So that's what I would do. 
If that doesn't work for you and you need additional information, please write us again and let us know some more specifics of how we can point you in the right direction. Absolutely. And something that occurred to me in the interest of making your mom feel better about things is if you have a handle on things, if you have a budgeting app that you're tracking as well, you know, maybe if you're close enough by, you can help walk your mom through it and offer her those verbal reassurances that I'm sure she would probably love to have. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. And maybe you want to be on the budgeting app with her. There's an app called HoneyFi and it's set up for couples. But I'm wondering if you and your mom could potentially use it together because it's made to be used by two people at once. Just a thought. I love that idea. Thank you so much, Jean. Thanks, Catherine. And in today's Thrive, should you pay your parents when they babysit? Yeah, it's a serious question. It's also a good one. Unfortunately, compensation can be a pretty touchy subject for everyone involved. Many grandparents want to babysit without being paid, while others, particularly if it's a regular gig, may have some expectation that their time will be valued. At the end of the day, it's up to you and your family to decide on what works best, but it's nice to have a roadmap before you dive into those conversations. This week at hermoney.com, we break down how to evaluate your needs, how to offer payment, how much to pay, and what to know about all of it from a tax perspective. For starters, just take a look at your needs. Hash out what you think your childcare needs are with your partner first. Are you thinking just for date nights or on-call situations when your kid is a little sniffly for daycare? What are your needs? Can your parents help and do they even want to? For incidental babysitting, you may be able to return the favor in other ways because many grandparents are just thrilled for the privilege. Suggestions for showing your appreciation include things like a gift certificate for a night away or dinner out or a trip to the garden nursery. In a viral Reddit thread discussion of whether to pay for childcare, most commenters said that grandparents didn't want to be paid, but they were also sensitive to grandparents who couldn't afford to take on too much unpaid care. A number of people paid their mothers if the childcare was regular, and those who didn't compensated with splurgy birthday and Mother's Day gifts, tech upgrades like a new television or smartphone even mortgage payments. But if you're going to pay, how much should you pay? This will depend on your region, your parents' financial situation, and what feels fair and affordable to everyone. In-home babysitting is more expensive than a daycare setting, so that probably should be your guide. According to Sitter City, babysitters average $17.50 an hour. Nannies can make $25, but your parents may be happy with a more affordable rate. The other thing to know is that paying a parent does have tax implications if they meet certain earnings thresholds. According to the IRS, babysitters must report their earnings on their tax return for services of $400 or more. And things get more complicated if you pay $2,400 or more in 2022 to your parents and you want to claim the child and dependent care credit. If you decide to claim that credit, you need to give the IRS your child care provider's information, a Form W-10. And if that's your mom or dad, they're responsible for paying FICA taxes when they report their income. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Jordan Dooley for offering her 
own story and for giving us such amazing advice about how we can move on from tough times. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk soon.